0: Hello, and welcome back to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, and today we're going to continue a discussion with Mr. Doug Brooks, founder of the International Peace Operations Association, now known as the International Stability Operations Association. In the previous podcast, we discussed why proxy peace operations have come about, the importance and techniques for promoting ethical delivery of these services, and I asked him about competition from organizations that do not live up to ethical standards. In this podcast, we'll build from that point, discussing the challenges that standards-compliant companies face in post-conflict and fragile state markets, and how to meet those challenges. First, though, some more observations of my own about the continuing pandemic. Although the impact remains severe, both in terms of economy, lives lost, and cabin fever sanity, I continue to be encouraged by the response of the American people. People continue to adapt in innovative and imaginative ways. I think this is going to continue to change our economy and our interpersonal relationships long after the current crisis passes, and for the good. I know that my wife, for one, believes that schools will never have a snow day again, immediately going into teleteaching. That may be good, or it may not be good, depending upon your point of view. Physicians are likely to make telemedicine available after this, and companies will make greater use of telework. Individually, other people have noted that this came upon us during the season of Lent, where Christians are supposed to take time out for introspection and self-denial. This Lent is certainly far beyond trivial things like giving up chocolate, and provided an opportunity and an incentive to relook at our spiritual, family, and social lives. In other aspects, we also see adaptability and innovation in our industry, with companies voluntarily switching production to make things relevant to confronting the pandemic. I also continue to see reminders that the best government is local government, and that includes neighbors watching out for one another. It is truly an example of the worst of times bringing out the best in people. And now, back to our regularly scheduled podcast. Doug, we discussed competition from Russian and Chinese companies who, in some ways, could be considered semi-state rather than non-state or private entities. And you suggested that they become members of standards-promoting industry organizations, such as ISOA. Well, earlier when we were talking about proxy military forces, such as the Wagner Group, we mentioned that one of their business models, what they consider to be a competitive advantage, is that they don't feel bound by Western norms or humanitarian rules and ethics and conduct. If you're talking about those kinds of companies also then participating in the stability operations, isn't that going to cause a problem when you've got non-compliant organizations competing with your own for the same kind of work?
1: Yeah, no, I think uh, Wagner is a great example, a very similar example to, in my mind, uh, to Bob Denard of the, of the past. And essentially, since they're working for the Russian government, the Russian government says, we want you to do certain things. We really don't care how you do it. We don't. But you wouldn't see, for example, the Russian government hiring KBR or hiring uh, uh, DynCorp to do the same things because would not break the law or undermine human rights or something like that uh, for, for very good reasons. So I, I think there's a, there's a fundamental difference. I think the Wagner Group, for example, have a very difficult time getting a contract beyond uh, working for the government or the Russian government or the Russian government, uh, the allied
0: government. Well, what about the Chinese in peace operations, peace, peace building? I mean, they're uh, essentially, as long as it seems to be happening outside of China, they're they don't regard bribery and corruption as a problem, whereas your companies will go to great lengths to make sure that there's no bribery or corruption going on. Doesn't that place them at a competitive disadvantage? I'm talking about for like building roads or camps or humanitarian relief even.
1: Well, that's a two-edged uh, knife there. So yes, the U.S. companies or the Western companies or the not just Western, all the companies working for ISOA are at a competitive disadvantage if Chinese company or Russian company or whatever are willing to accept bribes to, to take certain contracts and so on. It's not good for the mission. It's not good for private sector clients. So, for example, if you have a oil company that is, needs to have security or needs to have logistics and they end up hiring a Chinese company that's willing to do bribes and things like that, that oil company, that's a Western oil company, could in fact be liable for the fact that they've hired. Some dumbasses to do. To, to, they're taking bribes. Essentially, that can come back to haunt their own contract. So there, you have to be careful who they do hire. One idea of having all the companies in ISOA following this code of conduct, it gives clients a lot of confidence that essentially the, the, the hire, people they're hiring are not idiots and are not criminals. You don't have that same level of confidence if you try and hire a company that's not part of a, a, a trade association with a code of conduct.
0: Well, aside from the question of whether someone should hire ethical companies, standards-compliant companies are also more expensive, so that presents a double obstacle. First, that potential clients may not care about human rights and ethical provision of services, and second, these same qualities, again which some developing states and even some private sector clients may not care about, also make the industry association companies more expensive, therefore a double impediment
1: can become an impediment, and if you're doing uh, proper oversight and management of contracts, um, it gets expensive. If you have, for example, the U.S. requires all its contractors and subcontractors and local nationals to have uh, health insurance and life insurance, which makes, I think, a lot of sense to do these missions, but it also jacks up the price considerably. Um, So, yes, conceivably you could do it cheaper, and we have in the past where you don't have uh, those sorts of standards. So yeah, it could be a competitive impediment. It could be a cost-effectiveness issue, but that's something you have to think about when you're going to do a stability operation. If you're going to do it right, it's going to cost you a bit of money.
0: So, Doug, what can we do then? And by by we, I mean the U.S., our allies, and ISOA member companies. ISOA, as an organization. What can we do to maintain a competitive advantage for standards and ethical-compliant companies in offering their services and conducting operations to support sustainable peace?
1: It's It's an interesting point, but since basically at this point in world history, all peace operations are essentially funded by Western money, are getting paid this money to do peace operations, whether it's security or logistics or construction, whatever, you can require that they live up to certain standards. And they don't have to be Western terms, they just have to be universal standards that say you you know, you have to operate legally, you can't do you can't violate human rights. Maybe if you want to have standard saying that everybody operating using this money will have to be paying their, their employees for covering the employees' insurance, life health insurance, life insurance all that sort of stuff has can be put in place control over these missions. And so it's, it's quite easy to say these are going to be the minimum standards. I would argue it's better that the companies are part of a trade association, which can also help support that kind of compliance and professionalism. Uh, but ultimately, just saying, okay, this money, if you're going to use it for this peace operation, then here's the minimum standards you're going to have to follow.
0: How do we encourage the government of a developing or fragile state that they need to hire a company that is compliant with international ethical standards rather than, using their own money, hiring a Chinese or a Russian company.
1: Yeah, I don't know how I'd answer that other than saying that, you know, the, the harsh reality is that um, some governments pay more attention to this stuff than others. And, um, you know, we can, can't wave a magic wand and make afghanistan Law-abiding country in the world, it takes time and takes effort and laws and rules, and regulations and good functioning courts and legal systems to make that happen.
0: That doesn't help ISO yeah. members today.
1: Uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough industry, and uh, for ISO members, again, overwhelmingly, their funding is going to be coming from Western sources or, or UN or whatever else who do have standards and guidelines and so on. So. Um, It's frustrating when they are undercut by what we call bottom feeders, by companies that are um, not following the rules and so on. This is one reason I think the industry has been so supportive of effective oversight um, by the United States and other countries of emissions. Because our feeling, the industry's feeling, is that if clients are paying attention to what is going on in the field and the better companies will win out every time, good way to squeeze out their, their poor competition, the ones that are trying to cut the corners and, and do things in a, in a illegal way or unprofessional way. So it's a, it's, it was interesting when I was running the Trade Association that um, you know, when bills kept would come up in Congress saying, hey, let's do better oversight on this, that, or the other thing, uh, almost always the Trade Association was able to support the bill. And said, yeah, we're good at that
0: because essentially that's going to reward our members. If we wanted to do one thing, If we could just focus on the most important thing to do right away to improve the quality of the private sector supporting sustainable peace in post-conflict and fragile states, what would you suggest we do?
1: I think that if you require transparency within the industry, if if you're saying that uh, we want to see how uh, we're not going to hire a company that does not... describe who who owns it how it's operated that needs to be fairly open i mean essentially if a company for example is going to be a part of the stock market they have to reveal certain things um, before they'll be allowed to be a part of the stock market and you can do something similar i think in, in stability operation all these companies are operating in countries where you have weak and failed states fragile states where you have barely functioning legal systems if you have a legal system and so the companies are essentially being asked to be honest on how they operate, and, uh, and there are some ways to sort of make sure that happens, but nevertheless, uh, if you require companies that are being paid money from Western sources to allow a certain amount of transparency and not hire the companies that are okay, then I think you'll get much better products in the end, and as long as all the companies are operating on the same level playing field, and the better companies are certainly going to stand out and do better.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Thank you for being with us today. I think that you clarified a lot of misconceptions that may be out there uh, regarding the private sector support for stability operations. And I hope that you'll join me again on a future podcast. Thank you. I assure you that that won't be the last time that we talk about proxy PeaceFare, but for now, for next week, I'm going to shift to something a little bit more topical and a little bit more pertinent, biological warfare please come join me next time for the ancient art of modern warfare. I'm Chris Mayer.